I want to talk with you about the table. The table. In every culture and context, in our offices and our homes, in our politics and our economics, in our social circles and our religious traditions, there's always a table. There's always the table. We're very beholden, maybe unconsciously, to the people who have set that table. We often want a good seat at it. We're sometimes not esteeming enough of those who serve at it. And we have all sorts of manners and customs around it. Think of some of the tables in your life. What do you picture? I remember the long dining room table in the house where I grew up and how my parents would have dinner parties and they would cover it with a tablecloth and before the guests got to the table, I would sneak underneath the tablecloth so I could listen to what adults talk about. <laughs> I remember the, 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 the training table when I was in college and I would gather with our crew team, our rowing team, and we would uh, eat there and we would fellowship there and we would build both our spirit and our bodies in order to be able to perform when we went out into competition. That was a very important table for me. I imagine the kitchen table that Amy and I bought together, one of the first purchases that we made as a married couple, and how that same scarred table endured for year after year after year, and how we would light a candle every night and set it in the middle of that table, and our boys would gather around and our family would be together. There's a table where our staff meets to, to pray and to plan and to solve problems together. There's a, a table in my friend's basement where I will be tomorrow afternoon hoping to win at Euchre. <laughs> Though even if I lose again, I'll be glad to be there because this group of guys matters to me. So I'm asking you again, what are the tables? What are the important tables of your life? The table matters. <laughs> like few things else, if you think about it, really matter. The table matters. The table is the place where the crucial conversations happen. It's the spot where the significant values of our life often get taught or reinforced. And important relationships are, are deepened and sadly sometimes broken. I remember how much the, the table of my grandparents' house mattered to me. Every Sunday, our family would go after our morning activities, sometimes church, sometimes not, and we'd head off to my grandparents, and we'd sit at their big table, and I'd listen to them tell the stories of our family. And I'd learn who I'd come from and what our family valued and the difference that our family felt called to make in the world. One of the popular theologians that I have enjoyed through the years is a guy named Leonard Sweet, and he says this, at the table where food and stories are passed from one person to another and one generation to another, at the table is where each of us learns who we are and where we come from and what we can be and to whom we belong and to what we are called. 
In light of that, I don't think it should be all that surprising to us that Jesus did some of his most beautiful signs, his most timeless teaching, his most radical work in the lives of people at the table. At some table. And that's exactly what we're going to explore together in these weeks leading up to Easter. We're going to study seven striking scripture stories That picture for us, Jesus at the table and what he did there and the things that he said there that can be so incredibly enriching and informing to our lives because the things that happened at the table with Jesus revealed realities and and reinforced practices that can bring us in closer alignment with what Jesus called the kingdom of God, the potential of life, the goodness for which we're made, and sometimes lose sight of. And the first of those amazing encounters with Jesus was of all places at a wedding table. And I want to invite you to listen to how the Apostle John tells the story in John chapter 2. On the third day, writes John, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now, Cana was just a little town located in the northern part of Israel to the west of what was known as the Lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. It's just a little village. And I will just say that parenthetically, if you've never done this before, go into the sanctuary here at our Oak Brook campus uh, someday when you get the chance and walk up to the front of the place and go up to that big honking baptismal font we have there. And you're going to see the bottom of that font is an, is an olive tree stump, and it's actually from Israel. It's from the Holy Land. And on top of that stump is a great big massive rock into which is carved a little bowl from which we often baptize, and that rock comes to us from Cana in Galilee. Rub your hands on the rock. There's every probability it was there when this story we're reading about happened. And so John goes on. There's this wedding. It's in Cana of Galilee. And he tells us Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And if you haven't seen the Chosen episode, I think it's in season one, that describes this encounter. It's really worth a watch. Um, But just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever been invited to a wedding? (laughs) Have you ever been to one? Yeah, it's a real, it's a universal human experience. Isn't this great? The first, one of the first great things that happens in the Bible is this description of Jesus entering into the middle of a really human and important experience. I've been to a few weddings um, I, I bet I am statistically unusual in how many weddings I've gone to over the years. And, 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 and I want to show you a picture from just one of those weddings. Um, this is a photo that I took at the wedding rehearsal dinner table before our son Cole was married to the amazing Heather DeBoer. And, and that's her mom to the left, in the front of the picture, front to the left. 
We had originally planned to hold this dinner at Ditka's restaurant, but we ended up there in our living room and dining room. In fact, we set up this really long set of tables all the way stretching through our house uh, in that place. And I hope that you like the Hogwarts Harry Potter look because my wife Amy worked hard on that. that. That's one of the tables. I want to show you another one. This second picture is of the head table at the wedding reception that was hosted at the lovely home of Amy and John DeBoer. And, and, and I think the folks at Phillips Flowers did a really nice job with that, don't you think? I mean, how beautifully they decorated that. The original plan was to hold the reception at this historic uh, building in Oak Park, and Heather and Cole were really psyched about holding the reception there. And then this final picture, well, that one is a cake-cutting table at a reception that the the Boers and the Myers held in October, many, many months after the original wedding in January, for all the guests that could not come to the wedding in January. And and that wedding table, that cake table, is in the garage at my house. That's the beautiful setting of that. So why do you suppose the wedding rehearsal was held in our living room instead of Ditka's? Or why do you think the wedding reception was held at the DeBoer home instead of in Oak Park? And why do you figure we needed to hold a second reception 10 months later? And why was the cake cutting table in a garage? Amen. Can I hear that (laughs) blessed word? Yes, the word that shall not be named, actually. Yeah, a global pandemic shut down Uh, so much in that era. And even months later, After careful planning and after it was safe to sort of come out in public again, a torrential rainstorm shut down our plans for a lovely garden party to celebrate the wedding with even more family and friends. Why? Because sometimes life happens when you've made other plans. This is big idea number one for today. Sometimes life just happens when you've made other plans. Here's the good news. That's where Jesus comes to. That's the story of the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. Now, we don't know everything about the details of what happened at that wedding, but this much we definitely know. It was marked by a calamity. It was marked by, by something that happened that was not on the planning schedule of the hosts of this particular event. And it's helpful to know that that very much like today, weddings were big deals in ancient times, uh, but maybe you could argue even bigger deals than they are today. They typically went on not for multiple hours, but for multiple days, even as much as a week would go into celebrating. They involved people not just from your carefully curated uh, guest list, but they involved people from everywhere in the town and often from other nearby towns. And in an era when you did not have to put your money into automobiles or internet or other kinds of technology or vacations or, or 401ks or country clubs or you name it, People put all their resources into weddings. They put uncommon resources into weddings. Why was that? Well, because it was one of the main tangible ways you could express your absolute love for your kids in a way they would never forget. It was one of the ways that you lavish kindness on all your peeps 
your people in life. It was one of the ways that you bolstered your reputation as a person that people would want to hang out with or do business with at other times. Long, fun, boisterous, celebratory weddings were, were all the rage in the first century. You get that? So just imagine the face of the host of the event when the steward walks up to him as he's talking and laughing at, I don't know, the parent table maybe, and the steward whispers in his ear, Sir, we're out of wine. Like, and the implication is early in the week, we're out of wine. This is worse than a pandemic shutting down your reception hall. (laughs) This is a lot worse than a rainstorm forcing you to cut the cake in the garage. This is a catastrophe spelled O-U-T, out. We're out of wine. We're out of wine? The guy must have thought We do not know who passed the news on to her, but somebody did. Maybe it was the mother of the bride, maybe it was the groom who went to her because she was just one of those people that after a time of knowing her, you would naturally go to for comfort when life was happening in a plan-wrecking kind of way. But somebody went to Mary. Somebody told her the truth of what was going on. And the Bible says, when the wine was gone, Jesus, his mother, said to him, they have no more wine. Now, I think there could have been a bunch of potential reactions Jesus could have had to this news. He could have probably, I guess, stormed up to the bridegroom And he could have said, what? What? Did did, did you fail to plan for all of these people? And, you know, he was going to take care of 5,000 himself. If he was going to feed 5,000 in a short while later, he could imagine him going, what? Did you you not think about this? Did, Did you let too many people in here? Did you not curate the list properly? Are you skimping on the hospitality? Are you cheap? I mean, did you hire a bad wine supplying company? Do you not get how important this whole wedding is to your kids, to to your future, to your social reputation? Do you not care that we traveled all the way from Nazareth to be here and there's no more wine? Now, honestly, It's sort of hard to imagine Jesus reacting like that. But it's not hard to imagine lots of people reacting like that because it's how we so often do react in the face of disappointment, in the face of the the aberration of the plan. Uh, So often we pile on guilt or shame or criticism onto other people, when our own plans, our own hopes have been frustrated in some way, I know, I get the letters. 
seen some of this. I guess I'm guilty of some of this. But Jesus, Jesus is not like this. I read once of a, a woman who, who got the news that one of her parents had died. And her words were, I quote, good. Now there's one less pair of eyes to judge me. Imagine what it was to sit at that family table over the years. Imagine the guilt, the shame, the criticism that must have been part of the story of that family's life for that woman to have that kind of attitude later in life. Jesus, he's not like this. Just quite the contrary. Jesus came to rescue people from their guilt when they have messed up. Jesus came to deliver people from their shame when problems have happened that, that they're not sure quite how they happen and how it all worked together like this and, they, and they're in a place of terrible despair over that when they just can't fix it, they don't know how to control it. Jesus comes to be the savior that we all so desperately need. You are safe with Jesus at the table. Life is what happens when you've made other plans. You are safe with Jesus when life happens. I have promised our staff that this message would be unusually short for me. So I can't take you through all the meaningful dialogue that took place here. I'm going to have to cut to the chase, move quickly, and bring this to a close. So let me read from the scriptures. Nearby stood six stone water jars, big ones, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Each of the jars held from 20 to 30 gallons. You can do the math. Let's assume they were big jars. We're talking 180 gallons uh, these, these uh, jars are capable of holding. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Okay, wine's hard to get, water we can probably procure. So they filled them to the brim. Then Jesus told them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now, the master of the banquet is the guy, maybe the caterer. He's the person that's been hired to manage this whole feast. And the Bible says the servants did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, side note, in the kingdom of God, it's not the masters that get it. It's the servants it's like Downton Abbey. It's not the people upstairs, it's the people downstairs, close to the ground, who often see the wonder that's really going on or the problems that are really there. And then he called the bridegroom aside, the master of the ceremonies did, called them aside and said, hey, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. I know it never happens like that in your house, but you would never do that. But this was common practice. 
but you. You have saved the best <laughs> till now. Wow. And then John concludes the story like this. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And the Greek sense there of those actual words, pistuo ice is the Greek terminology, is and they poured their trust into him from this moment on. You see, this miracle that Jesus did at the wedding table in Cana is a sign. It's a wonderful act in itself, but it's pointing towards something. It's pointing towards a day ahead when, when we would be in a place that symbolized the reality that the world's hope had run out. That all of the messed up parts of the human character and of our history were converging in such a way that all we were left with was guilt and shame and despair and hopelessness. This, this moment in Cana is pointing towards the day when, when all of that comes together and suddenly Jesus is there and he pours out from his own body, really, the spiritual equivalent of 180 gallons of premium red. Premium red grace. Jesus did a lot of great things in his earthly life. But he saved the best for Good Friday. And that's where the journey of Lent is heading. Stay with us on this journey. We've got a lot of tables to visit before we get there. You and I, and I'll say this in closing, you and I, we're just never going to be able to do for other people all that Jesus can do for them. That's why we just try and bring them to him and let him do his thing with them. But we can reflect his glory in smaller and yet very, very important ways. I guarantee you this in the days to come in the weeks and months to come, you are going to find yourself at the table with someone, someplace, who's run out of something that they really need, for whom life has happened in a way that has defied their plans and put them in a very bad place. It may be their fault that it's like that. That doesn't matter at the moment. You might invite them into a conversation to think about that, but that's not the main thing. It may be something they're feeling terrible shame over, that they couldn't fix it or they couldn't control it. It may be that they're running out of patience or hope or maybe they're out of ideas for how to get themselves out of this mess or maybe they're out of money or they're out of friends or they're out of time or they're out of energy to do the things that really need to be done by somebody. What would it look like for you to be the signpost toward Jesus? What if you were one of those really abnormal people who doesn't just pile on guilt or shame or, or, or ignore their problem or just move on in search of your own better party, what if you were not like the normal people, 
What would it look like for you to surprise somebody in trouble with 180 gallons of premium grace? I'm with you. I won't leave you. I know somebody I can introduce you to. I I think I can help this way. I wonder if you've thought about this. What form, what kind of jar would that grace come in that you could actually pour out to somebody? So much so that that person is moved to wonder, wow, I thought I was out. I thought I was finished. I thought this party was done. But what you've done is so much more than others do through you. God has saved the best till now. May that be so as we go from this place today. I want to invite you to rise to your feet and we're going to close our service today. I want to remind you that if you are somebody that's got a need in your life right now for which you'd value prayer, maybe it's, maybe it's something that's really messed up. Maybe it's, it's somebody that you love who's really hurting. Maybe it's that you're ready to open your heart and say, Jesus, come in. Whatever the need or opportunity is, we would love to pray with you about that. If you stop by the prayer banner over here, there will be folks on hand that would be just so honored to pray. If you're online, all you need to say is, I'd like prayer, and the host will help you there as well. If you have just five minutes, stop by for Christ Church in Five, right over here. We'd love to get to know your name, share a couple of potential pathways for you. You can say online, I'm new, and the host there will help too. But beloved, I want to encourage you to go from this place with hope and to look for people with the eyes of Jesus as if Jesus is looking through your eyes because he wants to. And I pray that when you meet people that have fallen down, when you meet people that are run out of resource, that you will be the presence of Jesus to them and pour out for them a grace that is greater than the gravity of this life. And may God grant you the joy of being that servant until we meet again and forevermore. Amen.